Chapter Thirty Nine of Journey to the Center of the Earth. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Reading by Lars Rolander. Journey to the Center of the Earth by Jules Verne. Chapter Thirty Nine. The Explosion and Its Results. The next day, which was the twenty-seventh of August, was a date celebrated in our wondrous subterranean journey. I never think of it even now, but I shudder with horror. My heart beats wildly at the very memory of that awful day. From this time forward our reason, our judgment, our human ingenuity have nothing to do with the course of events. We are about to become the plaything of the great phenomena of the earth. At six o'clock we were all up and ready. The dreaded moment was arriving when we were about to seek an opening into the interior of the earth by means of gunpowder. What would be the consequences of breaking through the crust of the earth? I begged that it might be my duty to set fire to the mine. I looked upon it as an honor. This task once performed, I could rejoin my friends upon the raft, which had not been unloaded. As soon as we were all ready, we were to sail away to some distance to avoid the consequences of the explosion, the effects of which would certainly not be concentrated in the interior of the earth. The slow match we calculated to burn for about ten minutes, more or less, before it reached the chamber in which the great body of powder was confined. I should therefore have plenty of time to reach the raft and put off to a safe distance. I prepared to execute my self-allotted task, not, it must be confessed, without considerable emotion. After a hearty repast my uncle and the hunter-guide embarked on board the raft while I remained alone upon the desolate shore. I was provided with a lantern, which was to enable me to set fire to the wick of the infernal machine. "'Go, my boy,' said my uncle, "'and heaven be with you. But come back as soon as you can. I shall be all impatience.' "'Be easy on that matter,' I replied. "'There is no fear of my delaying on the road.' Having said this, I advanced toward the opening of the sombre gallery. My heart beat wildly. I opened my lantern and seized the extremity of the wick. The professor, who was looking on, held his chronometer in his hand. "'Are you ready?' cried he. "'Quite ready.' "'Well, then, fire away.' I hastened to put the light to the wick, which crackled and sparkled, hissing and spitting like a serpent. Then, running as fast as I could, I returned to the shore." "'Get on board, my lad, and you, Hans, show off!' cried my uncle. By a vigorous application of his pool, Hans sent us flying over the water. The raft was quite twenty fathoms distant. It was a moment of palpitating interest, of deep anxiety. My uncle, the professor, never took his eyes off the chronometer. "'Only five minutes more,' he said in a low tone. Only four, only three. My pulse went a hundred to the minute. I could hear my heart beating. Only two, one. Now then, 
Mountains of granite crumble beneath the power of man. What happened after that? As to the terrific roar of the explosion, I do not think I heard it. But the form of the rocks completely changed in my eyes. They seemed to be drawn aside like a curtain. I saw a fathomless, a bottomless abyss, which yawned beneath the turgid waves. The sea, which seemed suddenly to have gone mad, then became one great mountainous mass, upon the top of which the raft rose perpendicularly. We were all thrown down. In less than a second the light gave place to the most profound obscurity. Then I felt all solid support give way, not to my feet, but to the raft itself. I thought it was going bodily down a tremendous well. I tried to speak, to question my uncle. Nothing could be heard but the roaring of the mighty waves. We clung together in utter silence. Despite the awful darkness, despite the noise, the surprise, the emotion, I thoroughly understood what had happened. Beyond the rock which had been blown up, there existed a mighty abyss. The explosion had caused a kind of earthquake in this soil, broken by fissures and rents. The gulf, thus suddenly thrown open, was about to swallow the inland sea, which, transformed into a mighty torrent, was dragging us with it. Only one idea filled my mind. We were utterly and completely lost. One hour, two hours, what more I cannot say, passed in this manner. We sat close together, elbow touching elbow, knee touching knee. We held one another's hands, not to be thrown off the raft. We were subjected to the most violent shocks whenever our sole dependence, a frail wooden raft, struck against the rocky sides of the channel. Fortunately for us, these concussions became less and less frequent, which made me fancy that the gallery was getting wider and wider. There could be now no doubt that we had chanced upon the road once followed by Sacknusum, but instead of going down in a proper manner, we had, through our own imprudence, drawn a whole sea with us. These ideas presented themselves to my mind in a very vague and obscure manner. I felt rather than reasoned. I put my ideas together only confusedly, while spinning along like a man going down a waterfall. To judge by the air which, as it were, whipped my face, we must have been rushing at a perfectly lightning rate. To attempt under these circumstances to light a torch was simply impossible, and the last remains of our electric machine, of our Rumkorf coil, had been destroyed during the fearful explosion. I was therefore very much confused to see, at last, a bright light shining close to me. The calm countenance of the guide seemed to gleam upon me. The clever and patient hunter had succeeded in lighting the lantern, and though in the keen and thorough draught the flame flickered and vacillated and was nearly put out, it served partially to dissipate the awful obscurity.
the gallery into which we had entered was very wide i was therefore quite right in that part of my conjecture the insufficient light did not allow us to see both of the walls at the same time the slope of waters which was carrying us away was far greater than that of the most rapid river of america the whole surface of the stream seemed to be composed of liquid arrows darted forward with extreme violence and power i can give no idea of the impression it made upon me the raft at times caught in certain whirlpools and rushed forward yet turned on itself all the time how it did not upset i shall never be able to understand when it approached the sides of the gallery i took care to throw upon them the light of the lantern and i was able to judge of the rapidity of motion by looking at the projecting masses of rock which as soon as seen were again invisible so rapid was our progress that points of rock at a considerable distance one from the other appeared like portions of transverse lines which enclosed us in a kind of net like that of a line of telegraphic wires i believe we were now going at a rate of not less than a hundred miles an hour my uncle and i looked at one another with wild and haggard eyes we clung convulsively to the stump of the mast which at the moment when the catastrophe took place had snapped short off we turned our backs as much as possible to the wind in order not to be stifled by a rapidity of motion which nothing human could face and live and still the long monotonous hours went on the situation did not change in the least though a discovery i suddenly made seemed to complicate it very much when we had slightly recovered our equilibrium i proceeded to examine our cargo i then made the unsatisfactory discovery that the greater part of it had utterly disappeared i became alarmed and determined to discover what were our resources my heart beat at the idea but it was absolutely necessary to know on what we had to depend with this view i took the lantern and looked around of all our former collection of nautical and philosophical instruments there remained only the chronometer and the compass the ladders and ropes were reduced to a small piece of rope fastened to the stump of the mast not a pickaxe not a crowbar not a hammer and far worse than all no food not enough for one day this discovery was a prelude to a certain and horrible death seated gloomily on the raft clasping the stump of the mast mechanically i thought of all i had read as to sufferings from starvation i remembered everything that history had taught me on the subject and i shuddered at the remembrance of the agonies to be endured maddened at the prospects of enduring the miseries of starvation i persuaded myself that i must be mistaken i examined the cracks in the raft i poked between the joints and beams i examined every possible hole and corner the result was simply nothing 
Our stock of provisions consisted of nothing but a piece of dry meat and some soaked and half-moldy biscuits. I gazed around me, scared and frightened. I could not understand the awful truth. And yet, of what consequence was it in regard to any new danger? Supposing that we had had provisions for months, and even for years, how could we ever get out of the awful abyss into which we were being hurled by the irresistible torrent we had let loose? Why should we trouble ourselves about the sufferings and tortures to be endured from hunger, when death stared us in the face under so many other swifter and perhaps even more horrid forms? It was very doubtful under the circumstances in which we were placed, if we should have time to die of inanition. But the human frame is singularly constituted. I know not how it was, but from some singular hallucination of mind I forgot the real serious and immediate danger to which we were exposed, to think of the menaces of the future which appeared before us in all their naked terror. Besides, after all, suggested hope, perhaps we might finally escape the fury of the raging torrent, and once more revisit the glimpses of the moon on the surface of our beautiful Mother Earth. How was it to be done? I had not the remotest idea. Where were we to come out? No matter, so that we did. One chance in a thousand is always a chance, while death from hunger gave us not even the faintest glimpse of hope. It left to the imagination nothing but blank horror without the faintest chance of escape. I had the greatest mind to reveal all to my uncle, to explain to him the extraordinary and wretched position to which we were reduced, in order that, between the two, we might make a calculation as to the exact space of time which remained for us to live. It was, it appeared to me, the only thing to be done. But I had the courage to hold my tongue, to gnaw at my entrails like the Spartan boy. I wished to leave him all his coolness. At this moment the light of the lantern slowly fell, and at last went out. The wick had fully burned to an end. The obscurity became absolute. It was no longer possible to see through the impenetrable darkness. There was one torch left, but it was impossible to keep it alight. Then, like a child, I shut my eyes, that I might not see the darkness. After a great lapse of time, the rapidity of our journey increased. I could feel it by the rush of air upon my face. The slope of the waters was excessive. I began to feel that we were no longer going down a slope. We were falling. I felt as one does in a dream, going down bodily. Falling! falling, falling. I felt that the hands of my uncle and hands were vigorously clasping my arms. Suddenly, after a lapse of time, scarcely appreciable, 
I felt something like a shock. The raft had not struck a hard body, but had suddenly been checked in its course. A water spout, a liquid column of water fell upon us. I felt suffocating. I was being drowned. Still, the sudden inundation did not last. In a few seconds I felt myself once more able to breathe. My uncle and Hans pressed my arms, and the raft carried us all three away. End of chapter 39 Read by Lars Rolander